Greetings and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. This is the season two premiere of our humble little podcast, episode 15, and we welcome Dr. Monica Gandhi. She's the director of the UCSF Center for AIDS Research, also known as CIFAR and the medical director of the HIV clinic at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, also known as Ward 86. Dr. Gandhi has been a prominent voice in the discussion around COVID-19 and how that pandemic has affected California and has actually been um, pretty prominent on the national stage as well, writing for publications like The Atlantic, The New York Times, among others, about harm reduction. In other words, just how to live with COVID in our midst basically, what we need to do to take the maximum precautions available to us and also live our lives. Her perspective is not uncontroversial. She's definitely drawn some pushback and some critics, but she also has a lot of supporters. And I am personally quite drawn to the idea of harm reduction. And as we enter year three of the pandemic, uh, trying to get to a place where COVID-19 is endemic and we can live together once again, get out into the world. And of course, you know, keeping in mind uh, the conditions of those who need special attention and accommodating that as needed. We talked about all of this in our conversation. Uh, It's fascinating. At least I hope it's fascinating to you. I'm just honored that Dr. Gandhi dropped in for this special occasion, the season two premiere of What is California? So uh, we'll get to that in just a second. Before that though, quick check-in. Haven't talked to you this year yet. How are you doing? How were your holidays? I hope that 2022 is off to a great start for you. I'm doing all right, I think. Kind of um, still a little bit sad about the passing of Joan Didion, the high priestess of California Letters in December. She lived a good long life, um, but you know, she's someone whose work, I think, told us something about California that no one else had told us before. And I don't know if there is necessarily an heir to that legacy. I don't know if there's anyone coming up behind Joan Didion to help us understand the state the way she did. So if you haven't gone back and reread some of her work, whether it's Slouching Towards Bethlehem or the White Album or this amazing commencement address she gave to UC Riverside in 1975, I'll put in the show notes. It'll also come out in uh, this week's What is California Weekend Links newsletter, but this commencement address is unbelievable. You would have thought it was written this year. It's so current. It's so contemporary. She was just so far ahead of her time, but also a part of her time. It's just, it's amazing the work she did and just how accurately and evocatively she reflected this state, its people, its history, and even its future. Um, She really, really meant a lot to me. And I hope everyone here gets a chance to go back and revisit some of her work. She will be missed. Meanwhile, I got more lemons on my lemon tree than I know what to do with. So if uh, you're looking for some Meyer lemons, I know a guy. It's still not raining in Sacramento. I don't know if it's raining where you are, but um, if you have any control over that, if you can turn that on, I'd really appreciate it. We could use it. And I'm looking ahead to 2022. I can't believe it's already close to the end of January. I mean, we are January 20th when this episode comes out. January 20th already. Uh, I got a really good second season of this show coming up for you. I won't spoil any of the guests yet, but I've done some of the interviews already. It's 
really shaping up to be good. I'm really excited to share these conversations with you. So I hope that you will subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and spread the word. You know, this uh, podcast, like so many podcasts, depends heavily on word of mouth and that kind of organic support. So anything you could do to get the word out, I'd really be grateful. All right. So Dr. Monica Gandhi is our guest today. As I mentioned, she is the director of the UCSF Center for AIDS Research and the medical director of the HIV Clinic at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, also known as Ward 86. Before we get into this conversation, this was taped uh, about a week ago. And so we were kind of approaching the peak, if not at or very near the peak of the Omicron surge. But with that in mind, I wanted to go ahead and share some numbers with you about COVID in California right now. Because as of January 18th, according to the Los Angeles Times, California had surpassed 7 million coronavirus cases, and that was adding 1 million in one week. And as I record this on January 19th, we're right at about 7.5 million COVID cases in California since the start of the pandemic. Uh, Total COVID deaths in California, 78,000. That's about 9% of the national COVID deaths total of 855,000, again, as of this moment. But what I really want to talk about before we get into the conversation with Dr. Gandhi is hospitalizations because Dr. Gandhi works at a hospital and that is where I think the focus should be and where the focus has not traditionally been. We've talked a lot about deaths necessarily. We've talked a lot about masks and precautions and mandates, vaccines, of course, but hospitalizations I think are where we might pay a little closer attention so we can get our heads around what really needs to be done here. Because that's where the story is right now. Hospitals are stretched to their breaking points. Some are even beyond their breaking points. According to CalMatters, as of January 17th, um, just this week, 14,639 COVID-19 patients are currently hospitalized in California. That includes 2,300 patients in ICUs. And then there's over 12,000 non-ICU patients, but 2,300 patients in intensive care. Here where I'm at in Sacramento County, we broke an all-time record for coronavirus hospitalizations over the weekend, reporting nearly 550 COVID-positive patients in hospital beds, according to the Sacramento Bee. When you look at the counties, the 58 counties across California, it runs from zero COVID hospitalizations in Sutter, Modoc, Mariposa, Trinity, and Lassen. Congrats to them. Uh, Mono County has two patients hospitalized with COVID. And then LA County has 4,700 patients, including 680 in intensive care. But look at a place like Yuba County. There are 48 residents of Yuba County who are hospitalized with COVID-19. Now that may not seem a lot compared to LA County, right? With 4,700 patients. But that number in Yuba County equates to 62 out of 100,000 people hospitalized with COVID. That is by far the highest rate in the state. By comparison, it's 46 residents out of 100,000 in LA County. It's not great either way. And Placer County, Imperial County, San Bernardino counties, they're roughly tied for second 
with about 54 residents out of 100,000 residents hospitalized with COVID-19. Now, there are a lot of ways to regard or interpret these numbers. And for me, for most of the pandemic, but especially watching the numbers skyrocket over the last month, these numbers bring to mind three things for me. First, numbers aren't just numbers. Numbers represent people. They're human beings. They're Californians. They're our relatives. They're our our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues. They're real people whom you know, whom I know, and who really matter. Real people whose long-term health is compromised or at risk. The second thing, the vast majority of these hospitalizations are unvaccinated patients. Not all of them by any stretch, but the vast majority. And every one of them is going to be on the hook for medical bills. One recent analysis, for example, uh, from the University of Michigan determined that those bills could be around $4,000 if you have private insurance or $1,500 for Medicare Advantage patients, but for the uninsured, and there are many. The study found that the average hospital treatment for uninsured COVID patients could cost around $42,000. And I will link to that study in the show notes. I have heard some folks say, I'm just going to get COVID, get the antibodies, get treated if I have to, and just get it over with. Vaccine, not necessary. Okay, just be ready to pay with long COVID, which is no joke, and be ready to pay thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars for treatment or or even hundreds of thousands of dollars for ICU treatment. Those copay waivers that insurers offered in 2020, it's 2022. Most of those waivers are long gone or they're dramatically reduced. So everybody should just be ready for California to face some tough times with medical debt coming up. Now, to be clear, I am not saying any of this to scold anybody, to shame anybody. I, I bring it up because it's a reality that I, I just don't hear discussed very often, if at all, what it costs, literally costs people to be hospitalized with COVID-19. And we should be talking about it. People need to know that. Now, the third thing. Every unvaccinated person hospitalized with COVID represents care that vaccinated folks can't get for other things. Let's say your kid is playing in the backyard, breaks her arm. Treating that broken arm is that much harder because of hospitals stretched to the breaking point with COVID patients. Say you're in a car accident or a bike accident or you have chest pains or a concussion, or someone needs their appendix out, it'll all get handled, but when? And and how? How does your urgent need fit in this vast puzzle in this state where we're diagnosing a million new COVID cases in a week? How? Anyway, just some food for thought as we approach this conversation with Dr. Gandhi. Please, please, if you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you know someone who's not vaccinated, please urge them to get vaccinated. 
please wear a mask. No one wants to. We just need to. Be a good citizen, please. This isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about us. It's about Californians. It's about the solution. All right? Be a part of the solution. All right. Just a quick editorial note before we begin. The sound quality in this episode kind of varies pretty wildly. Dr. Gandhi, as you might imagine, is on the go all the time, and that includes during this interview. We did a remote interview, and that was necessary under the circumstances, of course, and the unintended consequences of that remote interview are a little more evident than others. Of course, we fix what we can in the post-production of this humble little podcast, but there will still be some strange sounds that you're not accustomed to on a show. So I apologize in advance for that. The interview is still great. Dr. Gandhi is still awesome. We're so grateful for her insights. So without further ado, here is me with Dr. Monica Gandhi on the season two premiere of What is California? Enjoy. Dr. Monica Gandhi, welcome to What is California? It's so great to have you here. As we speak, it is the morning of January 13th, 2022. We're two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, heading into year three. And um, it sounds like it's a little chaotic at your hospital this morning. Can you describe what's happening at UCSF where you are? Yes. I mean, actually, we're in this transition period from pandemic to endemic and of the of COVID-19, which what that means is hopefully Omicron is going to get us over the curve and we're going to deal with this virus like other respiratory pathogens. But until then, we're still treating it as if we're in the pandemic phase, which means we're quarantining and isolating people based on having infection, even if they're um, vaccinated, and even um, at times if they're asymptomatic. So that leads to a lot of people being out, uh, waiting at home uh, while they're quarantining or isolating, and that's causing a lot of disruptions in the hospital. And that's actually true everywhere right now in the country. In January of 2020, two years ago, do you remember what kind of timetable you thought was realistic for getting this under control? You know, I don't know if anyone thought it would take uh, two and a half years, but I think it's going to take two and a half years. Now, how long did I think? I was looking back at the 1918 pandemic because I'm sort of a student of infectious disease history because I'm an ID doctor, and it took about 16, 17 months. Why? Because essentially it went through the population. It unfortunately caused a lot of natural immunity and a lot of deaths. It was 50 to 100 million deaths in the 1918 pandemic, and we had fewer people uh, here were about 5.5 million deaths worldwide, um, and and then and then likely the virus became less virulent, and then and that and natural immunity it finally quelled it. Um, this is taking longer. This this I hopefully will be quelled after the Omicron surge, but this will be a total of a two and a half year, almost. I mean, basically two to two years and three months pandemic, if if the predictions are true that it quells after Omicron. Um, so uh, it's longer than I thought, and it's uh, it's it's partially we had a great vaccine, but we we didn't have neither the vaccine uptake nor the vaccine distribution that I was hoping we'd have by this stage. Yeah, under the circumstances with Omicron, how is California generally doing with weathering this particular surge? I mean, what are the bright spots and maybe the not so bright spots we should know about? 
The bright spots are that um, there was a large Kaiser study from uh, from L.A. or from Southern California that showed us that this is a less virulent pathogen, uh, Omicron. And so what that means is that I believe they it was 52,000 people with Omicron. No one was in the ICU or no, sorry, no one required ventilation. So there is less virulence of this pathogen. However, um, in places, again, that have lower vaccination rates, there are uh, unvaccinated people in the hospital for sure. Um, in places like mine with high vaccination rates, we're doing fine with the hospitalizations we can manage. It's the staff shortages that's making it difficult. It's a transition phase. So California is having a hard time because every winter we always have staff shortages. We have to be out if we have respiratory virus uh, symptoms in the setting of being in healthcare these days. And so it's really, uh, I think Governor Newsom was really smart like two days ago over the weekend, he said, every winter we're gonna have increased staff capacity for hospitals. And that's the right approach. I think no one realized that every winter is hard for us, especially in this transition phase. I wanna pivot to your California story. Are you from here originally? Uh, Or if not, when did you get here? So I'm from Utah originally. I'm Indian American, but I grew up in Utah. I went to Harvard for medical school um, and I made a beeline for San Francisco after medical school to come to San Francisco uh, at UCSF because in 1996 because I wanted to do HIV medicine and I also was very impressed with the harm reduction approach to HIV in the city of San Francisco, the kind of tolerance, the, the, the help with LGBT communities that was uh, really tolerant and it wasn't what I'd experienced uh, growing up. What's your earliest memory of California? Earliest memory um, was actually coming from Utah with my family to visit Berkeley. Um, and, and I was like, it was my dream. It was like, you know, the colors and, the, and, and just uh, how progressive it was. And I always wanted to be like a Telegraph Hill. That was my early mem- earliest memory is being in a place where things started, I thought, you know, a progressive thought. And um and the beat poets. And that's my earliest memory of coming to California and loving Berkeley. How old were you? Oh, I was something like 11. Uh, (laughs) um, How and when did you become interested in medicine, specifically infectious disease and treating people with infectious disease? So actually quite early on, because I had a friend in high school who came out as gay and his uh, parents kicked him out in the middle of um, the winter. And I it was the, the beginning of AIDS, actually, and I thought um, I wanted to do that. I wanted to work in HIV. I wanted to work in a space where um, where people were stigmatized for no reason so that I could address it. And so very early on, I wanted to work in HIV. Then I didn't know what that would look like if it was advocacy or policy. And then when I went to college, I really liked biology, and then I tended towards medicine, and then I went to Harvard, and then at there... Um, I got really interested in the in the pathophysiology of infectious disease, meaning I love bugs, I love I love worms, I love parasites, I love bacteria, I love viruses, I love fungi. I know it's weird, but I love infectious diseases, and so it was an obvious thing to do to go into infectious diseases to approach HIV care. Right, and you're the director of the UCSF Center for AIDS Research, also yes. known as CFAR, and the medical director of the HIV clinic at San Francisco General also known as Ward 86. What was the state of the art around HIV and AIDS treatment when you arrived in California? So 1996, so when I arrived, so it was literally a year 
where at the beginning of the year as an intern, people were still didn't have access and we still didn't have these amazing medications that we have now. People were dying and it was about really helping people die with dignity. And by the end of the year, we watched people rise from the dead, literally with these highly active antiretroviral therapies. It was in the space of a year. That was the year of 1996 when these medications became available. It was astounding to see the progress. Um, and it was so moving. And that was the year I arrived. And I, I'll ever be changed by that experience of progress. How did your role researching and treating HIV and AIDS and observing that evolution. How did that prepare you for researching and treating COVID-19? Well, I mean, I am, I'm trained in infectious disease, so it is an infectious disease, but there was a difference, I think, that I was so longstanding in HIV, or I thought about HIV so much, that I had a little bit of a different approach towards the pandemic in California and elsewhere which is more of what I call a harm reduction approach. And that idea was that absolutely we have to mitigate COVID. And as soon as we had to lock down at the beginning, we had to figure out how it was spread. And then after that, the concept of harm reduction was we lock down when we need to, but we um, keep very essential things open that reduce the harm on society with safety procedures in place. And that really focused for me on school closures because there was such a harm of keeping children out of school. Uh, and again, knowledge of infectious disease history, we never close schools um, like this uh, for any infectious disease pandemic. In fact, um, New York City in the influenza pandemic in 1918, Everyone said, you have to close the schools because influenza affects children um, as well. And they said, no, we're a progressive city. Children uh, need school, like fish need water, and we're not going to close the schools. They never closed their schools, neither did Chicago. Uh, sort of intriguing difference <laughs> from now, right. um, where more blue cities actually did close schools for prolonged periods. And so I fought. I fought for school openings in California, which unfortunately was a state where schools were closed the longest, 50 out of 50 in reopening schools. And... That was on the concept of harm reduction. Um, and then things like masks, uh, ventilation, I wrote about, um, but masks mainly. And then when the vaccines came, I really, really wanted to educate people on vaccines and immunology and history of ID and how, how vaccines can, can get us through because the only thing that ends pandemics is really immunity. Right. I think I first encountered you last year, that would be February of 2021, uh, in an article you wrote for The Atlantic, where you did argue that the vaccine rollout should hasten the reopening of schools. Yes. Uh, and I know you're publishing before that, too. And I guess, did you ever see yourself staking out this kind of public role in this conversation about COVID and life during COVID? Uh, no. And in fact, I haven't really liked um, the controversy that has surrounded it in a way, because harm reduction, you can be really careful and keep society closed for two years and three months, but there's going to be ill effects. Um, and I really wasn't arguing for anything but schools to be open. But yes, it, it that was the first article because the idea was now that we have vaccines, teachers should be prioritized for vaccines. And then um, we need the, the over caution that we had portrayed towards children, especially when children were at low risk, carries its own risks. And those risks I wrote about in February 2021 are equally as true a year later, which is mental illness, depression, anxiety, learning loss, eating disorders, and everything that we've seen has accumulated for our children uh, in keeping schools closed uh, longer than we needed to. 
who is the audience for your work? Because state COVID policies and even local COVID policies are so divergent across the country. Who do you hope to reach or persuade? Well, I actually hope to have to be able to change it God forbid for the next pandemic, because my the audience was diverse, like meaning the state, I don't think I could influence um, very much in the sense that we were, were truly 50 out of 50 in school openings. And it was hard to live in the state um, and argue one position when um, it was more of a COVID zero approach in the state of California. However, I think it had influence hopefully on, maybe it had influence uh, along with other scientists to finally open the schools in, in fall of 2021. And then hopefully it fundamentally had influence on the democratic response. This is what I'm hoping because there is such a focus now from the Biden administration on saying, no, schools shouldn't close even with Omicron. Right. You and other doctors at UCSF, like Dr. Bob Walker, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, among others, you've been especially prominent in the discussion around COVID in California and really nationally too. You've had a national audience. Why do you think that is, this UCSF kind of cluster? Well, I mean, I think UCSF, maybe uh, it it is really one of the premier medical schools in the country. Um, I think we have one of the best infectious disease divisions in the country. There's kind of five really good ID divisions. And I really think that we're one of them um, in national rankings. And, uh, we are kind of out here on the West Coast. Um, a lot of the East uh, Eastern schools and Eastern academic institutions have had more of an influence on national policy. This is true of HIV. This is true of so many things. And here, um, I think we were lucky that we are the largest state that we got to have in some influence on national policy. Uh, but uh, I think we just kept on talking. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I mean, you have built a dedicated following on Twitter, uh, but you've also talked about leaving Twitter. It's in your bio even. Like, I am going to leave Twitter. I yeah. Why, why would you leave and, and why do you stay? You know, I stay because I actually think I have a sense of the history of infectious disease pandemics that maybe some epidemiologists don't have. Um, if they're in other fields. The other one is that I actually work in the hospital. I work in the clinic. So I see uh, people and they're at the effect of the prolonged isolation. I see people whose kids have been out of school and they can't go to work. And that gives me uh, more of a unique perspective if you work in a clinic, a uh, primary care clinic, and the hospital with COVID, like it, it, I, um, which sometimes uh, epidemiologists don't have the perspective of seeing people. So it's a unique um experience, I think, to be an MD and also no ID. And I feel like I have something to say that I'm hoping to like set a stage for the next pandemic response that would be more along the lines of harm reduction um, and more along the lines of what do we keep for society and more along the lines of creating public health trust, because I think the public health community has lost trust from not clear communication. Um, but the reason I want to leave is um, I don't actually like uh, uh, yeah, people being angry. And I think it's such a polarizing pandemic that some people are angry at me for um, school openings. And then on the opposite, people are angry at me of, of pushing the vaccines. I can't tell you how many people say I must be paid by pharmaceutical companies, which I'm not. So it's polarizing. It's on both sides. It's not comfortable. Never happened to me before. Can't wait to leave. <laughs> wait, but I got to get, we got to get through Omicron. You got your last tweet all written and everything. I do. I have my last tweet written. I think Omicron will push us into the, 
epidemic, uh, what's called the epidemic stage. Um, in fact, Dr. Uh, Governor Newsom said this yesterday. He said he thinks it's going to happen in a month. I hope that's true. And it could because it builds this kind of wall of immunity and it's less virulent. Have to get through a very painful time in the next month. But I think he's right with his prediction. In a recent profile in the San Francisco Chronicle, you said that you felt, and I quote, really uncomfortable in my own skin in this city for the last year and a half, end quote. And that sometimes you've even thought about leaving San Francisco. What has made you uncomfortable specifically about San Francisco? You know, um, I think San Francisco's really changed since 1996. And again, we talked about the beginning, what drew me to the city, which is progressive politics and a focus, I think, on, on the poor um, and, and stigmatized. It, since it's become a very wealthy city, um, you know, in these last 25 years. And so our response was more directed uh, to protect the wealthy in the city, meaning um, private schools stayed open, but public schools didn't. So anyone who could afford it could send their kids to school. Um, you know, this so-called uh, Zoom class, but people who could work from home. But essential workers and people who are like my patients were not given the opportunities, for example, to access public things like schools because the schools were closed. So it became, it changed it to me where it changed from a progressive response. And the most restrictive approach was more favorable towards the wealthy um, in any in any country. So it didn't seem like the San Francisco I knew. And yet when I spoke up about it, I would be called you know, again, not being as careful as my colleagues or not recognizing that things have to be shut down more. And um, and so I felt uncomfortable in my own skin because I thought it was a progressive city. So that it's it's that simple. Do you think you'd really leave San Francisco? I um, I have I have thought about it, actually. I've uh, looked at I've been um, received some job offers and I have looked at it. It's going to be really complicated for me because I didn't really like growing up in a red state <laughs> when, I, when I grew up. But things seem really topsy-turvy right now. Um, the coasts, um, and I mean, this has been talked about a lot politically, but are the Democrats right now representing the poor? Are they working for the working class? I really, I don't, I don't think I can explain what a bleeding heart progressive I am. So I, I, it's it's a very interesting question. It's going to be to see what politics shape up in the in the United States. We have to go back to our roots and our base and help people who don't have the means. We have to uh, in the Democratic Party. You'd be climbing uphill no matter where you wound up, whether it's here or in yeah. Texas, because of your prevailing interest in helping the less privileged. And if California is shifting that way, I mean. You can stay here and, you know, at least have a little more political alignment uh, with the political establishment and maybe have a little more support from that, uh, whether it's fundraising, you know, or legislation. Um, or you can go to Texas and kind of like, or, or just for example, Texas, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, just it could be anywhere. You know, Florida, where you're climbing uphill without the support of the governing class, you know? You're totally right. I, people have described this question of politically homeless when when you fought for school openings for your kids, right? Because a lot of the scientists who, who fought for school openings were mothers. We have to realign our priorities in this country around what our public services do. We have to work on education. So you're right, and, and I just think it's a really uncomfortable time. Give it a month, <laughs> and then everyone will have more clear thinking. we got to get through Omicron. All right, I got you. Um, I want to talk about grief a little bit, because I was really moved 
by something you said in that Chronicle profile. You discussed the experience of being with your late husband, Dr. Rakesh Mishra, as he battled cancer, saying you, quote, managed to put aside the fear and the anxiety of what could happen to actually live during that time. When I see people so anxious saying, I will go and live my life once COVID has truly been eliminated, I feel sad because they're losing out on life losing out on the joy, losing out on connections, and losing out on things that they could have right now, end quote. And I wanted to quote that uh, fully to just kind of bring the full sentiment forward. Uh, First of all, I'm so sorry about the loss of your husband. I often wonder how grief influences and motivates people, particularly in their work. Has this specific grief influenced what you've done and what you've worked on over the last two years in particular? You know, I think there is no doubt that everyone is informed by their own experience. So my husband battled cancer for 10 years. He got it um, two months after my second, our second son was born. Uh, and then he died three months before the pandemic. Um, I will say that that is actually what we did. We had scans and a good scan, like maybe low cases or something, we would, we would feel immense relief and joy even though we knew that a Damocles sword was hanging over our heads and that he would eventually pass from this. And we truly lived and we savored connection. And then we'd have a bad scan and we would decide how to deal with it. There were two ways to deal with it. One was being absolutely very paralyzed by anxiety, or we would say, we don't have that much time because actually no one has that much time. And Let's go and show our children. Let's go to the museum. (laughs) Let's go show our children this. Let's go do this with the children. It was, we cultivated a way of living that wasn't actually constrained and ruled by anxiety and fear, even though we had true reason to fear. That was evidenced by his death. And it was a learning and a profoundly learning experience. It was really thanks to his courage. I probably would have fallen into despair much more if he hadn't been so courageous. Was based on faith um, a lot, but he, it, it led us to understand that life is finite. And I do feel sad for people who are so fearful of COVID. When, for example, after the vaccines, they work so they work so well that your chance of death is point oh 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 three. Can't stress that enough. Four zeros and then three. But because the cases are high right now not understanding that the vaccines are working so well. There are people who are very fearful, including students and teachers and, and parents. And I think we we haven't told people enough the good news that we have ways to fight it. And um, yes, yes, it did influence my approach. There is no doubt it did. You see, because I feel like COVID itself is a grieving process for all of us, that so much of the anger about COVID is really just like a dimension of grieving those losses that you mentioned, whether it's life or joy or connections. I know that's my experience personally. That's, I, I, I definitely acknowledge that. And even if I haven't gotten sick and knock wood, you know, no one I know has been hospitalized or died. I still grieve what COVID has cost me and my family and my city and my state and of course my country. And I just, I relate to that so much. So what would you say to people who are struggling with this grief as the pandemic grinds on? You know, I would say that it has been a really long time and it's been really hard. 
there were ways to find joy and connection even between times because these, especially since the vaccines, please trust your vaccine and how well it works. But on the other hand, um, being fearful of mortality is a, it's a true profound part of human existence. And in a way it led us to confront our own mortality, which is uh, sadly inevitable for all of us. And so because of that, if you can figure out what gives your life meaning, and I don't think there's any question that human connection does. And so I would encourage actually Governor Newsom to when he, as he said yesterday, if we reach a new normal in a month, to allow our um, our our relief to come, which would be more much like a normal life um, with uh, with a flu surveillance model, it would mean that we vaccinate, we have treatments, and we do go back to normal life. And that means not masks and not asymptomatic testing. And I, I would encourage him to to say what he to do what he said yesterday. If we get to that case, that place of endemicity, which I think we will, because of Omicron. And in the meantime, we're all angry because we're sad. We look at movies and everyone's like crowded together and we're like really miss that. And I promise we'll come back, but even if it doesn't come back completely normally, please evaluate what gives your life meaning and spend time with people because it's not actually about closures or business closures or other things. It's about our humanity, why we wanted to be together. Who are some of the Californians you've met or encountered in your work specifically, whether it's COVID-related over the last two years or otherwise, uh, dealing with HIV and AIDS? Who are some Californians you've, who've really stuck with you and, and why? What compels you about them or their lives or their work? So going back to Eric Goosby, he is a um, born and raised in California. He was, I think, friends or lived on the street from London Breed when he grew up. Um, and he is uh, someone who has all his life worked for AIDS um, and has been part of executive professional um, connections with the presidencies, with Democratic presidencies. And he has just completely made a difference. He, to me, is the quintessential California activist. Um, and then I have others at my university, like Diane Havler, my boss, who has influenced me a lot and is not a native Californian, but she won't stop either. She just keeps on going in terms of trying to fight to combat infectious diseases. And there is this energy in the HIV movement um, that we kind of, it does, the reason it doesn't stop is we saw it start out horribly and we saw the tragedy and then we saw the resurrection. We saw this improvement, we saw the medications, we saw everything turn. And it's such an optimistic field to go into infectious disease because even though it doesn't seem like it, we're always gonna get through infectious diseases. We'll always figure it out. That's actually different than cancer, which my husband uh, died of. I don't have the same optimism. I hope we get there better. But in, in, um, in infectious diseases, the people who go into it are eternal optimists. We end every episode with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? <laughs> that is... Uh... Okay, that's really hard because um, I do like California. You're actually making me like California. Um. Oh, great. Fantastic. 
<laughs> more than I have when I go through the reasons why I came here. Okay, give me one minute. Yeah, I hear you typing there. Um, no, oh. I know. I'm actually looking at the founder of the City Lights Bookstore. <laughs> Lawrence Ferlinghetti? It was. It's Lawrence Ferlinghetti because this was the reason I came. I'm not kidding. Like we used to, we would come there from Utah. The Utah bookstores were totally different. We'd go to City Lights. It was in the middle of North Beach. I was like, what? This is totally different. I love this. You go down in the basement, like that, down that narrow <laughs> stairs. This is it. Okay. I'm going to say Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I love that. That's great. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could end with a, on a sanguine note about California. Um, Dr. Monica Gandhi, it's been such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that is a wrap on episode 15 of What is California, the season two premiere. Thank you so much to Dr. Monica Gandhi for appearing on this episode. So grateful for her time, uh, which is so precious for her to join us today with these insights and these perspectives and um, her candor too. I, I'm just so grateful for that. I really appreciate it. I hope you found it illuminating and I hope that you and yours can stay safe and healthy. What is California is produced Hosted and edited by me, Stu Van Aersdale. Our theme music is by Sounds Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the free Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That gets you a free podcast in your inbox every Thursday morning and a free roundup of cool weekend links, cool California stories in your inbox every Friday morning. You can support What is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. If you want to chip in a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running and keep the headquarters cat fed, you can email us anytime at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I would always love to hear from you, especially feedback about this episode and also any guests that you'd like to hear from, anyone we should reach out to for season two. Uh, we have a few open slots and I'd love to hear your thoughts. That rhymed. That was unintentional. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked What is California, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. Thank you so, so much for listening. It's so great to be back with you. I look forward to catching up with you next time. Until then, as always, remember, keep your eye on the bear. <laughs>